Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Uh, I will be joined uh, in just a little bit uh, by my co-host, Amba Gagarian. Uh, we have another amazing show for you today. Uh, we'll have a report back from Amba uh, from Saturday's historic pro-Palestine protest in Washington, D.C. Uh, we'll also hear from activists in the Bronx who have been calling out their congressman who spends uh, much of his time and energy championing Israel uh, rather than the needs of his own uh, constituents. And in the second half of today's show, we'll hear from Ellen Davidson. Uh, Ellen's a, a longtime indie contributing editor, also a anti-Zionist uh, Jewish activist, uh, anti-Zionist uh, Jewish activist uh, who has an article in our uh, November Independent uh, print edition titled, uh, What Do We Mean When We Call Israel an Apartheid uh, State? Um, also, uh, let's see here. Um, I, unfortunately, Amba is having some uh, technical problems uh, being able to join us. Uh, we were uh, looking back, uh, looking forward uh, to a report back from her, from her time in Washington, uh, D.C. on Saturday at that historic uh, a march uh, there that uh, drew uh, upwards of 100,000 uh, Palestinians and Palestinian uh, supporters to the nation's capital, uh, to the capital of a global empire that, of course, is uh, strongly backing Israel in the uh, uh, conflict in Gaza right now. And uh, if you go to independent.org, you can find our coverage from this weekend there. Uh, we had some really nice articles uh, by a couple of our reporters, Laura Noor. Uh, Walton and, uh, uh Tarek Asaghi, both, uh, from, uh, who were there this weekend. Also, uh, Amba was doing, uh, social media coverage for us, uh, throughout the weekend and has some videos up on Indie Twitter and Indie, uh, Instagram. Um, but since she's, uh, yeah, since Amba's having some technical difficulties right now, I think what we're going to do is uh, just sort of a uh, uh, jump ahead here a little bit and and uh, go to a couple of guests uh, from uh, the Bronx, uh, from the Bronx Anti-War uh, Coalition. Uh, they, uh, uh, Sony uh, Lopez and Richie Marino, uh, they were also both in Washington, uh, uh, D.C. on Saturday and have also been uh, uh, fighting uh, for justice in Palestine uh, in their home neighborhoods in the Bronx. Uh, uh, Sonia and Richie, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you for having us, John. Yeah, you bet. Uh, so, uh, just for starters, uh, I mean, we want to talk about the situation with your, your congressman and, uh, you know, the sort of the Bronx angle, uh, on all of this, uh, and the Bronx, uh, Palestine connection that, that, uh, you all see and have tried to underscore. But, uh, first of all, can you just give me, uh, your reactions to being, in Washington on Saturday at what uh, most people believe is the largest pro-Palestinian uh, protest in U.S. history. Oh, of course. I, I mean, for me, it was the largest protest I've ever been a part of ever. Um, and I thought it was an incredible action. There were so many cross-generational um, folks there, cross-culture, um, uh, so many children leading the march um, and leading the chants. 
we saw, you know, folks from Jewish Voice for, Voice for Peace. Bronx Anti-War was there as well. Richie spoke on behalf of Notori Carta. He can talk a little bit more about that. that. Um, but I was there um, documenting and just taking it all in. And I thought it was so powerful. I couldn't make it to the White House because I had to catch my bus back to the Bronx. And it was a five-hour ride back. Uh, got home like at 1 a.m. But it was so, so worth it and so edifying and um, amazing to see that collection and collectible folks there for Palestine. Great. And, and um, uh, actually, we I think we are now uh, joined by Amba Gagarian. Amba, are you there? Hi. Yes. Sorry. I was having some um, technical difficulties, but I'm here now. All right. Well, that's uh, that's live uh, radio for you. Um, so uh, it's great to have you here. Um, um, uh, We've kind of we jumped ahead a little bit here with uh, Sonia and uh, Richie, but uh, Sonia and Richie, if you can uh, just sort of uh, hang with us here for a few minutes, we want to uh, have have uh, some of uh, Amba's uh, footage from from Washington, and then we'll definitely jump back into uh, talking about what you all are uh, doing in the Bronx. Uh, so, um, uh, Amba, uh, let's see here. Uh, so, you know. Uh, well, let's just yeah take take it from the top. You were in uh, Washington uh, this weekend. Uh, we had a couple other reporters there. Uh, their articles I, I just mentioned, but you also got some uh, uh, some really great footage uh, uh, from that event. You, you want to share your impressions and then take us into the footage. Right, sure. Um, I was there uh, among, you know, at least a hundred thousand other people. There's many different counts, but uh, that number seems to be um, the most solid one for now. Uh, and it was, I haven't been to many other DC protests, but I've seen a lot and, you know, seen the organization of many. Um, and then for ones that I have been to, it's mostly groups that were pre-organized to go from different places and, and whatnot. And for this one it was definitely uh, many people coming out on their own last minute uh, families people of all ages as well as you know some organization you know among it within it with different Palestinian um, activist groups and many others lots of uh, Native American solidarity lots of you know um, black American but and other occupied people solidarity and then um, you know really solidarity I'd say across the board there was a group of Biden staffers that were there um holding signs saying ceasefire now um and you know ceasefire now rung out but so did free palestine and from the river to the sea palestine will be free um you know a lot of the the chants that we've heard over and over again gaza gaza don't you cry palestine will never die and that's one that i think particularly you see people crying out um in a need to chant in desperation you see a lot of at these protests in new york and in dc young protesters um just finding it within them maybe the need to 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 lead a chant you know so lots of chants coming from all different parts of the crowd Lots of people, lots of solidarity, good speakers, less press than would be at probably other protests of that side as far as the press stand goes. And, you know, um, a lot of people expressing, you know, disdain for Biden and um, his politics on this. But I think overall, the general feeling um, is that while the general public's opinion might be changing um, slightly toward uh, Palestine, Israel, that we've not bro- broken through the the dome of um 
the establishment. Uh, the media and the establishment, exactly. The media and, and, and those in power that are actually making these decisions on a national and global scale. So there's that frustration. But I have one short clip um, from the Palestinian National Anthem being singing, sung, pardon me, while we were in the Freedom Plaza, which is where everybody... Um, congregated and to give you an idea of how many people there were at least at the big just while people were congregating from the freedom plaza to the capital was full of people of pro-palestine post uh, protesters and i actually have a video of the whole entire march going by that we'll be posting on the independent on twitter and instagram uh later this evening but for now let's go to uh the palestinian national anthem being sung during the initial rally and i was very lucky to be standing behind a woman with a beautiful voice who you will get to hear a palestinian woman Well, uh, on our end, th- there may have been some technical issues. I think that clip should be over. I presume that's been around 26 seconds. I'm sorry if I'm speaking over it, but that was, uh, the, the people, many Palestinians and their supporters, uh, uh you know, tens of thousands, a hundred thousand, maybe more people on Saturday, November 4th, uh, singing the Palestinian national anthem at the March on Washington, um, Yes, and with uh, Israel's assault on Gaza dominating the news, uh, the Independent News Hour's Elias Guerra recently spoke with a cross-section of New Yorkers at Union Square to learn what they think about this. So you've got to vote. That's the only answer. That's all we can do. You've got to vote. But voting is the only thing we've ever done. Good afternoon. I'm a reporter for The Independent, um, and I'm doing like a little short uh, audio segment asking folks if they have any thoughts they're comfortable sharing about the conflict in uh, Israel and Palestine. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot of background on it, but I do think it's really unfair. It's basically a genocide. Honestly, they don't have an army, so it's basically genocide. And yeah, civilians should not be punished for crimes of politicians or whatever politics that is going on. Uh, I did. I finished high school over there in an international American school in Palestine in the West Bank. You can say there's three different groups of Palestinians that live within the Palestinian borders and the Israeli borders. The first one is, you could say, the ones that live in the West Bank. That's anywhere between Khalil all the way to Nablus and to Ramallah. And then there's a second group who live in Gaza, the, the Gazans, the, the Ghazawiyah, those are the Palestinians that are being bombarded. In the West Bank, at, at the very least, at least you could leave. The ones in Gaza, you can't really leave. So all of Gaza is considered a, a concentration camp. It's actually also considered the most densely populated concentration camp in the world. Then the thir- third group of uh, Palestinians are the ones who live in, they call them the Dakhil. The Dakhil means the ones who lived in Palestine, but they, they reside inside Israel. For me and my cousin, we're considered Tamanyu Arbain. Tamanyu Arbain are 48 kids. The 48 kids are the kids that got kicked out of their land and displaced in 1948. It's an urgent issue. Um, not, I don't even want to call it an issue because that's like, I don't even have the words to express what it is right now, but there's no, 
indecisiveness. There's no neutrality, like pro-Palestine, free Palestine, till the day I die. And that's I think I that if anybody could understand what's going on, it would be me as a black man living in America. The oppression that my people have gone through here, I see that same oppression being inflicted on the Palestinian people. Um, I see the news media being uh, used to make the victim look like a criminal and the criminal look like the victim. And it's going to end up not good for us, America, or Israel, or the world at large, bro. With the, with the open eyes that I have now, I can't be deceived. I see the deception and I laugh at it. I mostly watch democracy now. Well, it's uh, Voices of New Yorkers at Union Square speaking to the Indies, Elias Squera. And meanwhile, in the Bronx, activists have been calling out Congressman Richie Torres, one of Israel's most ardent supporters in Congress, for championing genocide in Gaza and for seeming to have forgotten his own constituents who live in the poorest congressional district in the country. Joining us now to talk more about that or who we've been with are Sonia Lopez and Richie Marino from the Bronx anti War Coalition, also known as BAWC, which is an anti-imperialist organization dedicated to challenging state violence and U.S. militarism here and abroad. So we're happy to be here with you all and to be continuing this conversation. So as residents of New York's 15th Congressional District in the Bronx and Richie Torres's constituents, can you talk about his background advocacy for Israel and you know why you disagree with him? Sure. I, I guess I'll start. Thanks for having us, Amba and John um, from the BX and beyond. Um, so as a constituent of Richie Torres, I feel that he started running on his campaign for Congress, pandering to the South Bronx. Um, during his campaign, when he was a council member, he would constantly mention that he grew up in poverty in NYCHA um, to a single mother. He's Afro-Puerto Rican. He's the first openly gay candidate to hold elected office as a council member and now as a congressional um, member. And he ran on this progressive platform. Uh, and now he's added to that list of descriptions for himself that he's a culturally Christian Zionist. Um, and I believe, and this is quoted in, in an article somewhere, I forgot the, the name of the publication, but he definitely said that. Um, and I believe Richie's advocacy for Israel and his disregard for Palestinians is irresponsible and it's dangerous and is in direct opposition to everything he claims to represent in the South Bronx. We live in one of the poorest in the poorest congressional district um in the South Bronx, uh District 15. And his support for Israel is in complete uh just disregard uh for the people, the brown black and brown people of the South Bronx and the brown people of Palestine, who he's ignoring um their plight and their struggle. And I'll let Richie add to to it to what I just said. Uh, and Richie, uh, just so listeners know, you're a public school teacher in in the Bronx as well as a, a, a Richie Torres constituent. Uh, so, uh, how do things look from your perspective about uh, the district and the way it's being represented by your congressman? Right. So, I don't think that Richie Torres uh, represents the majority of Bronxites. You know, I think that we are a community of immigrants. And a lot of us have faced violence in other, the countries and nations that, that we come from. And, and, and we continue to face violence from, from police forces in, in the South Bronx as well. And so because of that experience, I think that 
you know, we would never want our money going to war and, and funding genocide and funding the bombs that are currently being dropped on, on people living in Gaza. So the vast majority of people here, when you ask them, what do you want our money to be used to address? They would say, well, we want to address the problems right here in the district. We want to address NYCHA housing, which is, which is crumbling. I know many students of mine that, that live in NYCHA tell me that they had to walk up, you know, 12, 13 flights of stairs because their elevators were broken or they had to carry their grandmothers who are wheelchair bound up 13 flights of stairs because their elevators aren't working or they didn't have hot water or they didn't have heat, right? These are issues that Richie Torres, um, you know, claims to understand because he grew up in NYCHA, but he doesn't live there anymore. And, you know, now he lives a very different luxurious lifestyle in Washington, DC, whereas we, Bronxites, we still live here. We still have those problems. We don't get paid six figures plus a year to forget about them because we live them every day. Right. And let's hear from Richie Torres speaking um, himself about uh, what's going on in Palestine and Israel. This was on MSNBC on October 11th. We should be condemning in no uncertain terms the barbarity and the savagery of Hamas. Uh, there's no need to politicize. There's no need to psychoanalyze the feelings of Hamas. I'm, I'm, no, in, I'm no more interested in a psychoanalysis of Hamas than I am in, interested in a psychoanalysis of ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Right, and that was uh, your Congresswoman Richie Torres um, speaking on MSNBC on October 11th, I think it's interesting that he says it's not necessary to psychoanalyze who we might consider our enemies because I think that's actually really important in, in, in understanding anything is psychoanalyzing it. Maybe he needs to psychoanalyze problems better, like those in his he district. Psychoanalyze himself. Well, so how would you two respond to that? Sonia and then Richie. Um, to that and how it relates to yeah yeah how it, to it as a comment but also how it relates to your district and that opinion relates to your district oh uh, yeah so i mean i disagree obviously with torres's advocacy for israel and, and his comments um any comments that he makes before bx anti-war even held an action in front of his office i just wanted to point out that um torres's twitter feed did not mention the bronx at all for months months on end and until after we you know rallied in front of his office and called him out um he he started panic posting about the district and you know in 2020 alone also wanted to mention to your listeners that he received one hundred and forty one thousand dollars in campaign contributions from the american israel public affairs committee apac and we can't ignore these receipts right this is this is actually this is what this is what's making him dance and what's making him say these things on live on on air and on news channels and Richie, anything to add? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's really important to understand how Richie Torres came into power and who funded his campaigns. He was funded by luxury real estate developers um, who, if you look into their into their uh, documentation where they talk about their investment strategies and why they're investing in the South Bronx, like one of their main goals is to turn the South Bronx um, and the area of Mott Haven into the quote next Williamsburg. 
And they saw Richie Torres as an avenue to accomplish that. So while Richie Torres was um, in the city council, he approved a lot of the rezoning that is allowing all of these luxury buildings um, to go up in the South Bronx. You know, some of them, um, you know, some of them are considered, quote unquote, affordable housing, yet they cost $3,000 for a studio. So these how this housing that is being built in the South Bronx right now, it is not meant for the people that already live here. It is meant to bring in outside um, wealthier, you know, people. So it's increasing gentrification. Also, in addition to um, the APAC lobby, and which explains why he uh, speaks a lot more about Israel than he does his own um, borough. Um, it's also important to understand that he also has a strong partnership and collaboration with the NYPD and always has. So that is why right now there's still, ever since the BLM uprisings of 2020, there is still many, many of our community members that are being murdered by the NYPD. Um, and there is no justice for the families um, and the victims. Um, so in the same way that, you know, the IDF can, can murder and uh, Palestinians and there's no consequences for that. Um, you know, and Richie Torres is there to defend that behavior. He's also here to defend the behavior of the NYPD who oppresses, um, our, our neighbors. Right. Very, very good points. And of course, uh, Torres somehow found time to also to shill for the uh, crypto uh, currency industry before it uh, collapsed last year. Um, but, uh, uh, we have to go here in a, in a moment, but real quick, uh, can you guys, uh, give us, uh, contact info for how, uh, more people can uh, find out about the Bronx Anti-War Coalition. So we have a brand new website. It's called bronxantiwar.org, B-R-O-N-X-A-N-T-I-W-A-R.org. And also you can follow us on Instagram. Uh, the handle is bxantiwar or Twitter bxantiwar. And that's where we post a lot of our announcements. So if you want to get involved in an anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist organization in, in the Bronx, please follow us on social media. And we hope to see you at our next demonstration. Fantastic. Uh, Richie Marino and Sony Lopez from the Bronx Anti-War Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Independent News Hour. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be back with more after this short musical break from Rebel Diaz, also coming from the uh, South Bronx. Which side are you on, boy? Which side are you on, my lord? Which side are you on, boy? Which side are you on, my lord? See, I gotta draw a line. I can't take it no more. If you ain't down with revolution, what you waiting for? Making money for suckers and not communities poor. Ripping flags off of coffers, man, this ain't our war. Colonizing terrorized by the world's biggest killers. The U.S. government, the biggest weapon and drug dealers. Filling prisons with children, incarcerating. In the future, my space to Facebook got us stuck on computers, stuck on stupid bumping music that's abusive to the shorties. And the nonsense that you're spitting, they just listening, absorbing. I've been dormant, I've been working, I'm a giant, I'm ready. I'm with the Apple in Oaxaca, and we hold the machetes. I rock hard like palace-feeding children holding slingshots. I'm with every single kid that's down for hip hop, for the culture, the life, what it really stands for. This music is resistance, it's the voice of the poor. I'm on the side of the workers, the teachers, the lunch ladies on the streets. With Brown mommies raising not brown babies.
that was Rebel Diaz. Uh, which side are you on? Uh, a, a group coming uh, straight from the South Bronx. Uh, they will be performing at uh, Star Bar on November 18th in Bushwick, Brooklyn, at an event the Independent is uh, helping to organize, a Palestine Solidarity Night. Um, we're going to hear from another musician uh, who will be playing at the end of the show. Also, we're going to be doing a film screening of uh, a roadmap to apartheid, uh, a film narrated by Alice Walker, and we'll have a panel discussion. So stay tuned uh, for more uh, updates about that. I uh, want to encourage, of course, everybody who's listening uh, to support this station. It's WBAI uh, and really only WBAI that you're going to hear voices like Sonia Lopez and uh, Richie Marina, who just joined us from the Bronx Anti-War Coalition. Uh, the station can only run on your support, 212-209-2950, uh, or uh, you can also go to give number two uh, WBAI. Dot org. You can uh, make a one-time contribution or even better, become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month. That's 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, or go online to give the number 2 WBAI.org. That's give the number 2 WBAI.org. And pretty soon we will be uh, kicking off a fundraiser and if you don't want to have to you know wonder during the whole fundraiser when you're going to give you could just start early and give today uh it's it's the donations of our listeners and only the donations of our listeners which is unique about wbai among all other stations on the news dial that keeps us running so um please if you can donate if you are of humble means and you could donate five to thirty-five dollars, you know, one time or once a year. That is greatly appreciated. And if you are of less humble means, and you can become a monthly WBAI buddy, which you can sign up online or by calling that two one two two zero nine two nine five zero number, which comes with perks um, such as listening perks and a BAI tote bag. Uh, please do that, and you can do that in the name of the Independent News Hour. And then you don't have to worry about remembering to give. You just give a little every month. It could be $5, $100, whatever you can afford. Thanks so much for donating. That's 212-209-2950 or give the number to WBAI.org. And uh, you could do that in the name of the Independent News Hour. Right. Now we uh, continue our coverage of the uh, Palestine-Israel uh, conflict. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to hear from uh, Ellen Davidson, who spent a lot of time on the West Bank talking uh, about uh, Israeli apartheid. But first, uh, earlier today, I had a chance to do uh, a, a very uh, short interview uh, with uh, one of the directors of a movie called Israelism, which will be screened at Hunter College next Tuesday, November 14th at 6 p.m. Um, and uh, uh, I spoke with Sam uh, Eilerston uh, about this movie, which is about, uh, uh, y- young, uh, people in the Jewish community who have second thoughts about all the wonderful things they've been uh, brought up thinking about Israel. Let's hear from Sam real quickly. The film is really an exploration of, um, the, the sort of divide, particularly generational divide. Um, in the Jewish community right now, although we started making the film seven years ago, but, um, you know, continuing to grow, uh, in this moment, um, over, you know, our community's relationship with, uh, with Israel and with the Palestinians. 
Um, we made the movie because uh, myself and my co-director, Aaron, um, we both went to Brown University together. Um, we graduated in 2012. Um, and over the course of our time in school, and we both are Jewish, um, you know, both of us saw so many of our uh, peers who were also Jewish come to college, uh, you know, really believing that it was their job to uh, defend Israel on campus. Um, and, you know, would participate in sort of pro-Israel activities and do things like go on birthright and also, um, you know, protest and disrupt events that were uh, pro-Palestinian. Um, but a lot of these students, ultimately all of them, um, or almost all of them, although it took in some cases many years, um, you know, they would actually encounter uh, the Palestinian perspective and meet Palestinian students or Palestinian professors um, and just kind of be shattered by the experience um, because so many of these young people just hadn't even been told that Palestinians were were real people um, and um, and just just humanizing the other side for them um, really made them change in a pretty dramatic way um, and many of these folks that we know are are now doing uh, you know human rights work on behalf of Palestinians so. Um, but that was why we made the film, and the film um, focuses on, on two uh, Jewish young people um, who, you know, one of them uh, goes to college and is a campus advocate for Israel. One of them uh, joins the Israeli military, um, and then both of them, uh, you know, realize that um, that Israel's treatment of, of, of the Palestinian people is wrong and that, um, that they were, you know, supporting and being part of a a military occupation and a system of apartheid and um, ultimately become advocates for uh, Palestinian rights. And what kind of uh, reaction uh, have you gotten uh, uh, to uh, your film so far, both from uh, the older and the younger generations? You know, it's over, overall been extremely positive. Um, we were very proud to win uh, an audience award, um, meaning that the audience voted for us at uh, the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival, which is uh, the most sort of prestigious Jewish film festival in the country, um, so we've had a we've had a really great reception. A lot of young Jewish folks come up to us after the screenings and say, "This is my story too." Um, some older folks do too, um, which is really great. Um, there obviously has been some uh, pushback, um, you know, some. Uh, Folks aligned with the, the pro-Israel community have, have criticized the film, um, but, but overall people have been really receptive and felt like we did a really, uh, you know, uh, fair job of, of sort of explaining where everyone's coming from and, and telling the story that really hadn't been told uh, in a film before. All right, that was Sam Eilerston, uh, co-director of Israelism, a documentary that will be screened at Hunter College next Tuesday, November 14th at 6 p.m. Uh, go in at the 69th Street entrance uh, between Park and Lexington. And now, earlier today, we interviewed Ellen Davidson, and we're going to listen to uh, that recording. Davidson is a longtime contributing editor to, to us, The Independent. She's an anti-war activist and a Jewish anti-Zionist who has traveled multiple times to the West Bank. She is a member of Veterans for Peace, Jews Say No, and the U.S. arm of the Gaza Freedom Flotilla Coalition. We asked her about the article she wrote in a November issue, which is titled, What Does It Mean to Call Israel an Apartheid State? 
Ellen, uh, can you talk about what apartheid is and how it originated in South Africa and how the Israelis have uh, replicated it and also uh, built on it and taken it further? Yeah, um, and it's interesting. My start in activism was in college with the divestment movement around South Africa. Um, and so South Africa in the late 1940s started instituting a policy they called apartheid. And the word literally means apartness. And supposedly it was separate but equal development of the races, the different races in South Africa. Now, of course, as we know here from from our experience in education, separate from but equal is not separate but equal. And what happened in South Africa was they pushed the black population onto these small isolated territories that they called homelands or Bantu stands. And they said, these are where you live. And then the white population, the white settler population lived in the rest of the country, which included all of the urban areas and most of the economically developed areas. So the black population was in these tiny enclaves. They had to come out and work in the, in the rest of the land because there were no economic opportunities in these Bantu stands. And in order to move around in the white areas, they had to have certain ID cards and the ID cards would specify where they were allowed to go, where they were not allowed to go. And they, they couldn't vote in the white areas because supposedly they were citizens of these homelands. And it was an untenable, racist, oppressive system. And it was all held together by a very brutal police state as far as the black population was concerned. And there were thousands and thousands of people who were imprisoned, who were tortured. People were shot and killed in demonstrations. And the... The way it came to an end, besides the heroic struggle of the African National Congress and other liberation forces there, was international pressure. There was an international campaign to isolate South Africa diplomatically and economically. And the U.S., of course, was the very last to join it. And um, even after the end of apartheid was still calling the ANC a terrorist group. And the other country that that broke the diplomatic and economic blockade was, of course, Israel, the only country that was selling arms to South Africa, because that at least there was an international arms embargo in place for quite a while. And the the Israeli government was the one government that was completely allied with the South African government and was selling them arms during this period. And what do you see as the... uh connection beyond that in terms of how Israel has replicated in an apartheid system so so Israel in the in the same way has has based its whole existence is based on dispossession from the land and isolating and controlling the Palestinian population and not having equal rights so when Israel was founded, there was already at that time a massive dispossession. There were hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who left, who were refugees, who thought they were coming back in a few days when the things settled down, and they were never allowed back. And some of them have gone into the diaspora around the world, and some of them went to the West Bank, and some of them went to Gaza. 
in 19 and and so during that period gaza was under the control of of egypt the west bank was under the control of jordan and then there was what is known as israel the what became the borders of of the internationally recognized borders of israel inside israel at that time there were not equal rights for the palestinian residents and the jewish residents um and the Palestinian residents were kind of under a little bit of martial law during that period. In 1967, Israel then invaded and took over the West Bank and Gaza. And they have been under occupation or, or, and or blockade ever since. And so supposedly, and then under this mythical two state solution that everybody talks about creating, the West Bank and Gaza would be under Palestinian control and Israel would be under the borders that it had after, before the 1967 occupation began. But even in that, so the, what happened is the Israel started making settlements into Gaza, into the West Bank. And so the territory that the Palestinians live on, shrank and shrank until it's in these it's again in these tiny isolated little bantu stands all over the west bank if you look at a map of the oslo accords you'll see that the territory that is actually under palestinian administrative and military control and even that is nominal it's a bunch of little cantons they're not connected the settlements however are connected by roads that only israelis are allowed to drive on. And so to think of, to think that this could be a country and that this is where Palestinians can have their homeland and have rights, it's just absurd. So that's right. one area where they've replicated this dispossession and these making these isolated, disconnected banter stands where there's not really any kind of self-determination. The control about how people can move around, um, it's another area where they've replicated that, particularly in the area around East Jerusalem. So in East Jerusalem, people have a what's called their, their a Jerusalem ID, residential sort of permit, that allows them to be in East Jerusalem, even though they are part of the Palestinian population from the West Bank. But as Israel and the settlements encroach through the area of East Jerusalem and the wall snakes through everything, it becomes increasingly impossible for people to make a life there. They, the wall goes up and they find their dentist is on the other side of the wall. So they find a dentist on their side of the wall and they can't go, they can't go to the stores and the doctors and the schools and whatever they used to on the other side of the wall. So then they find, they find these things on their side of the wall. And then Israel said, Oh, see, your life is not really centered on Jerusalem. So we're going to take away your Jerusalem residency permit. And then they lose all of the privileges that and the services that went with that. So there's this I, this system of control with IDs that's very parallel. There's also the system of imprisonment of, of people randomly. They can, under Israeli law, they can imprison anybody under what they call administrative detention. This is for up to six months. No charges, no explanation, no legal counsel, no redress, no way to deal with it, no bail, no, you're just 
you're just arrested for six months. And then when they're done with the six months, if they want to, they'll extend it for another six months. So, so people have literally spent years in jail without even being charged. Right. And I want to break, uh, just jump in here really quick, Alan, because I have a question about that. You know, I know that, um, that is often, you know, that rule of the continual six months has been used for many Palestinian, um, prisoners and there's a list of thousands. Um, but is this also, you said anybody, you know, in the, in the territory. So does this also go for, say, an Israeli, you know, anti Netanyahu protester, uh, for example? No. No, this is Palestinians. Okay. only Palestinians. Okay. So. And I just, I just want to mention that, that two people that in a, a, a family that I know, when we've been on the West Bank, we've stayed at this family's house in the village of Nabi Sala and the, the family, the, the Tamimi family, the father of the family was arrested a little more than a week ago. They don't even know where he is right now. And this is a man that I have sat and discussed strategies of nonviolent protest. He is so committed to nonviolent protest and he's just been arrested and he's gone. They don't know where he is. And then a couple of days ago, his daughter, who's very well known, I had, she was um, well known because she was arrested when she was 17 and she was just arrested again at age 22. So, so just in my own personal limited experience, I know two people who have just been arrested in the last week and a half. Tell us more about your experience in the West Bank um, and uh, what you saw there. You know, as you said, it's small ghettos. I believe it's some, um, uh, uh, it's around 220 actually ghettos, uh, separated by over 600 military checkpoints. Um, and talk about these sterilization roads and the, and, and the wall and just what's happening there now and, and, and your own experience. Well, when you try and travel through the West Bank, I mean, it's certainly it's easier for me with an American passport and, um, it, I can basically travel where I want, but I do get, I do get stopped. I have to go through the checkpoints like anyone else. It's just that I'm allowed through them and the Palestinians are not. So, for example, Bethlehem is kind of, it's almost a suburb of Jerusalem. It's right next to it. It's a 20 minute drive. But if you are Palestinian and you want to get to East Jerusalem from Bethlehem, you can't just go straight through. You have to go. It takes about an hour and a half in order to get there because you have to go. You can't go on certain roads. You have to go on the roads that are, that are for the Palestinians. You can't go on the settler roads. And you have to go through certain checkpoints, which may or may not be open, which may or may not take you a long time to get through, or you may or may not get through them. So you can't just travel around, even in areas that are nominally all part of the West Bank. Villages are separated from other villages. Um, I remember when we went to the village, when we went to Nablus um, in 2007, and the we I was traveling with a group and we were in a van and we had to leave our van on one side of the checkpoint and walk through and move around Nablus in three different taxis because the van didn't have the right license plates to go through that checkpoint. Right. And the only way you go through that checkpoint is walking. You don't get any vehicles through. And coincidentally, we were one of the places we were visiting. There was a prison that that had been an Israeli prison and was notorious for torture and Two of the three taxi drivers that we just happened to get had been held in that prison and tortured. So that gives you an idea of just the extent to which the imprisonment and the torture has permeated throughout Palestinian society. 
Right. And, and I want to hear about these, these, um, the uh, ladders. Tell me about the ladders. Hebron is, if you don't believe it's apartheid, you just have to go to Hebron. The yes, city of Hebron is divided into two sections. One is under Israeli military control. And it's all because there are, there's a few settlements of really, I, I have to say rabid religious settlers they are god gave us this territory that nobody else belongs here they should all leave they harass the palestinians in the area there's one house across from one of these settlements that has iron um that has um the windows are all covered with with metal uh caging because the Israeli settlers just throw things at them and harass them. So their whole house is, in, is enclosed in a cage because they have so much harassment from living across from these settlers. Um, the, the marketplace has got chicken wire covering over it because there's settlements above and they throw things down onto the marketplace. So the military's role has been to try and keep the population of Hebron separate from the settlers. And in order to do this, they've closed down certain streets. And they their term for it is sterilization. Right. Which just the thought of it is it's repulsive that somehow Palestinians are germs. You have to sterilize things. So there's they have three levels. There is the level where Palestinian businesses are not allowed to operate on that street. So if you had a shop on that street, too bad. And um there's whole areas you can walk by with these shuttered, they're welded shut. These They have these metal doors that are welded shut. The second level is that Palestinians can't drive on that street. So if you have the Palestinian license plate, you can't drive on that street. And the third is Palestinians cannot walk on that street. So there's a street that used to be the main market street in Hebron, and it's deserted, except for a few soldiers coming up and down and some settlers coming up and down and and American solidarity activists who go through. But it's a it's now it's a ghost street. And if you live on that street and you're Palestinian, you can't walk in your own front door. So if you go up on the rooftops, you'll look and you'll see ladders going from roof to roof. And sometimes um, on the there's walls on the rooftops between buildings and there'll be a hole in the wall so people can pass through. And so people get to their own houses by going to a doorway or a building that on a street where they're allowed to be and then going up to the roof and and going through some complicated way to get down into their own homes. They cannot walk in their own front doors. Wow. Not to mention the homes that are either destroyed and apparently Palestinians have to pay for that destruction or the homes that are straight up kind of stolen by settlers and then, and, and, um, you know, re-inhabited by, by settlers. Um, a lot of which is going on on a more intense level right now, um, in the West Bank while, um, and, everything is happening in Gaza. But John, go ahead. Yeah. And, and, uh, apparently a lot of these settlers are often, uh, kind of, uh, straight off the plane from the United States or even, uh, you know, uh, Brooklyn or Queens and, and they have more rights, uh, than the, yeah, the local Palestinians. Yeah. The way it works, um, settlers, all this, all the settlements on the West Bank are patently illegal under international law, but the settlers 
the army has certain rules of engagement and their rules of engagement for the settlers on the West Bank is that the army is not allowed to control them because they are Israeli citizens. So the army has, so if you wanted an, a settler to be arrested, you'd have to get a police, a police person. So the army is, and if a, if a settler is armed and shooting at people, the army is not allowed to shoot them. The, the only way the army could stop that person is to wait until they reload and nonviolently tackle them. They cannot, that's the rules of engagement for a settler on the West Bank. Okay. So they're, because they're Israeli citizens, so the army is not allowed to touch them, whereas Palestinians are at the mercy of any soldier who wants to do anything they want, and they do. Yeah. And, and can you talk about uh, the recent upsurge uh, in violence uh, from the settlers on the West Bank? Uh, I mean, it started when... Uh, Netanyahu and his far right coalition came into power at the beginning of this year, but it's it, it seems came to back have, into power. For, yes, for, and it seems to have uh, uh, greatly uh, escalated since October seventh. Um, just talk about kind of the the violence, the impunity, um, and, and then if you uh, could uh, before we go, uh, offer your thoughts on uh, what you see as the the path forward, like what what a mm-hmm. solution could look like. Yeah, if there weren't if there weren't such horrors going on in in Gaza right now, what's happening on the West Bank would be drawing world attention because it's a horror show in its own rate. Right? It just I hate to say pales in comparison. It just it's just not quite the order of magnitude of tens of ten thousand people being killed. But uh, just in you know since October seventh. Almost 2,000 Palestinians have been detained by the military, have been arrested, um, for starters. And the settlers were, you know, they were encouraged and emboldened when the Netanyahu government came back into power. And they, there are two kinds of settlers. Um, there are religious settlers who really believe that God gave them this land and nobody else has the right to be there and everybody else is inferior human beings. And then there are so, there are economic settlers who just are living in a settlement because it's a nice suburb of Jerusalem and they can, they get subsidized and they can get to their job in Jerusalem on their settler only roads and it's a nice quick commute and lovely, beautiful neighborhoods. So, so what we're talking about here are, and, we, there's a whole other issue about how much culpability you have for being complicit in that system. But the, but the religious settlers are comparable to white nationalists and Nazis in this country. They believe that they have a God-given right to the land and that anything that's in their way is ex- expendable. And so they have been stepping up their attacks um that have been going on for decades. And right now it's the harvest season. And so um, it's the Palestinian farmers are trying to go out and harvest the olives. And this is always a season where the settlers go out and harass the farmers and make it impossible for them to earn a living from their agricultural land. And they sometimes torch their fields. They torch their fields. They try olives which can grow for hundreds of years yeah no the olive trees um are like family members they some of them are you know a thousand years old and um the settlers they torch the fields they've also they bulldoze them um and 
sometimes they dig up the olive trees and they'll replant them in a nice little traffic circle in a settlement. So a tree that might have been in your family for generations is now a, a decorative element in a settlement traffic circle. Um, and so they make it, they want to make it basically impossible for the Palestinians to live there. So whatever it takes, violence, destroying crops, destroying homes, burning houses, that's what they do because God gave them this land. They're real estate agents in the sky. And so, so it's, it's their right. And this is what has been happening. Yeah. On the and, bank. and just the, the last question, what do you see as the, the, the path forward? Uh, well, you know, despite what's happening right now, I haven't been doing this work for 45 years. Um, I have actually seen a great shift in the narrative and also among progressives. And also I think it's very important among Jews. The narrative is finally shifting to, so people understand that Israel is not a, not a democracy. First of all, it's not a place of equal rights. Um, that the occupation is a brutal and oppressive system and that Palestinians have been living under this for 75 years. So the, there actually has been a lot of shift in public opinion, although it might not feel that way sometimes when you look at the Democrats, you can only get 18 Democrats to sign on to a ceasefire resolution. But there really is a shift. And I think that that like South Africa, Israel is not going to be able to correct itself just on its own internally. It's going to take the, we have about a global campaign left. of of economic, diplomatic, political pressure to make this change. And I continue to feel that BDS, the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement, is a very important tool in this country and, and worldwide. Um, and it, it might feel like it hasn't got a big foothold, but I didn't realize when I was doing the work in the late 70s around South Africa, I didn't realize that that divestment campaign actually started in the 1950s. So, so the current BDS campaign, which started in the early 2000s, has really actually got huge traction in many, many ways. Okay, that was it. The Independence Ellen Davidson talking about her article, What Does It Mean to Call Israel an Apartheid State? Uh, we want to thank our uh, uh, board operator, Reggie Johnson. We will be, uh, for today's show, we'll be preempted next week and back on November 21st. And we'll uh, sign off here with a song uh, from Miriam El uh, Hajili uh, called Always in Transition. Uh, Miriam will be one of the performers at our November 18th Palestine Solidarity Night at Starbar in Bushwick.